it, it is not often that July 4th falls on a Sunday, and so I had to make a decision. Do I talk about America, or do I talk about the continuing series that I've been preaching on the kingdom of God? Well, guess what? You already know what I'm going to say. It's possible to do both. And in fact, it works out quite well. Um, I have been talking to you the last few weeks, at least, about different perspectives on God's kingdom, different angles of looking at what the kingdom of God is and how it relates to all parts of life, really. And so maybe three, four weeks ago, we talked about the kingdom of God and loving God, basically. Then we talked about the kingdom of God and loving our neighbor. Then we talked about the kingdom of God and loving one another. That was the last time that I was here with you. And I think it's very appropriate today on July 4th that we talk about the kingdom of God and, yes, loving America. How do we fit our love for our country into our commitment to seek first the kingdom of God? And what is the relationship between these two things? This is an important question. And I want to suggest to you this morning there are both healthy and unhealthy ways of looking at this. And if we get it right, that's going to be good both for the kingdom of God and ultimately for America too. Unfortunately, a lot of people today are getting it wrong, and I don't want us to be among them. So I want to begin today by bouncing a couple of, of pretty famous Bible verses off of you, and I'm going, to, I'm going to project them up here before you, and I will also say them out loud for those of you who can't see the screen because you're looking from online. But the first verse I want to share with you is Proverbs 14.34, which says this, Righteousness exalts a nation, but sin is a reproach or a disgrace to any people. Righteousness exalts a nation, but sin is a reproach to any people. The second one I want to share with you is Psalm 33.12. Blessed is the nation whose God is the Lord. Blessed is the nation whose God is the Lord. Both of these are pretty famous verses, one from Proverbs, one from Psalms. My question for you is, which of these two verses applies to the United States of America? You should think about that for a second. You probably think that I am laying a trap here for you, and that's probably true. Uh, you may have figured out by now that I love reading books almost as much as Pastor West loves reading books. And, and one of the best books that I've read this, this past few months actually has kind of a negative-sounding title, but it's called Bad Religion. And it's by a guy named Ross Douthat. I think that's how you pronounce his name. He is both a New York Times columnist and an openly committed Christian. So I'll let you chew on that one for a second. But at a time in which a lot of people, and certainly a lot of this guy's colleagues at the Times, are saying that religion doesn't need to have any kind of a place in American public life, and that the Christian church in particular is, is, is too influential, Douthat disagrees. He says that America's problem is not that we are too religious, but our problem is that our religion and our Christianity in particular is becoming weak and corrupted and therefore unable to make any real positive difference. The subtitle of bad religion is actually How We Became a Nation of Heretics, which sounds pretty bad, doesn't it? Kind of frightening. But Douthat identifies four great heresies uh, that are, have the potential to kind of take over the American church and are, are, are doing it slowly. The first heresy is really the so-called progressive Christianity that Pastor West talked about last week. Uh, he doesn't use that word to describe it, but it's, that, it's the, all the ideas about the Bible, about Jesus that, that West talked about last week. That progressive Christianity, as we tend to call it today, is really in a lot of ways just a rehashing of the old liberal Christianity from the early 20th century. But that's the first heresy he identifies. The second heresy is the prosperity gospel. Uh, come to Jesus, get rich, Watch him solve all your problems. 
The third heresy that he identifies is the idea that each of us can find God by looking inward. That if we really want to go on a spiritual journey, we need to look at our own hearts and look into ourselves. The kind of, you know, I've never seen the movie Eat, Pray, Love, and I'm not going to ask for a show of hands on how many have, but it's the kind of theology that apparently is really prevalent in that movie. Uh, you'll hear it on a lot of talk shows today and a lot of the popular culture, and it, it basically says you need to look inward for truth, and it allows everyone to say that they're spiritual, even if they're not explicitly Christian or even religious. But then the fourth heresy that Douthat identifies is, is probably the most subtle one, the most difficult to detect, and, and probably the one that's the most tempting for those of us here today. And I want to talk about that one this morning. And I, I think this can be revealed for us, at least in part, by the two Bible verses that I put before you on the top of the screen there and how we think of them in relation to our country. Let me give you a hint of where we're going by showing you the rest of Psalm 33:12 up on the screen there. The whole verse says, Blessed is the nation whose God is the Lord, the people whom he has chosen as his heritage. Now that may give you a little bit of a clue as to where we're going, and we're going to come back to it in a few minutes. In the meantime, there are a lot of places that we could go in the Bible to explore the idea of God's relationship to the nations of the world, and so by extension, God's relationship to America. But there's one book in the Bible that's really about that. It's really the theme of the whole book, and that happens to be the book of Daniel. So go ahead and turn with me back into the Old Testament, look at the book of Daniel, and when you get there, turn to chapter 2, Daniel chapter 2. And as you are finding uh, that chapter, let me just set you up a little bit by giving you some of the background. Daniel is a book that is about what happened to um, the nation of Israel while it was in exile in Babylon, actually the nation of Judah. And Daniel chapter 2, King Nebuchadnezzar, who was the ruler of Babylon, the greatest empire on the planet at that time, and in fact he is the king that has conquered God's people. He has conquered the nation of Judah, he has taken its people into captivity. This King Nebuchadnezzar had a very weird and disturbing dream one night. And because the wise men in his court could not tell him not only the interpretation of his dream, but he told them to tell him what the dream was, because he wasn't going to believe their interpretation if they couldn't tell him what the dream was. And they said, nobody can do that. And he said, well, fine, but you're all going to get put to death. He was kind of an impulsive character, King Nebuchadnezzar. But he found out that there was someone among the Hebrew slaves that had come in, a guy by the name of Daniel, who could interpret dreams. And so Nebuchadnezzar gives Daniel one chance to tell him both the dream and its interpretation. And that is what Daniel does starting in verse 31 of Daniel chapter 2. So go over to verse 31. Daniel says this to King Nebuchadnezzar. You saw, O king, and behold a great image. This image, mighty and of exceeding brightness, stood before you, and its appearance was frightening. The head of this image was of fine gold, its chest and arms of silver, its middle and thighs of bronze, its legs of iron, its feet partly of iron and partly of clay. As you looked, a stone was cut out by no human hand, and it struck the image on its feet of iron and clay and broke them in pieces. Then the iron, the clay, the bronze, the silver, and the gold all together were broken in pieces and became like the chaff of the summer threshing floors, and the wind carried them away so that not a trace of them could be found. But the stone that struck the image became a great mountain and filled the whole earth. This was the dream. 
Now we will tell the king its interpretation. You, O king, the king of kings, to whom the God of heaven has given the kingdom, the power, and the might, and the glory, and into whose hand he has given wherever they dwell the children of man, the beasts of the field, and the birds of the heavens, making you rule over them all, you are the head of gold. Another kingdom inferior to you shall arise after you, and yet a third kingdom of bronze which shall rule over all the earth. And there shall be a fourth kingdom, strong as iron, because iron breaks to pieces and shatters all things. And like iron that crushes, it shall break and crush all these. And as you saw the feet and toes, partly of potter's clay and partly of iron, it shall be a divided kingdom. But some of the firmness of iron shall be in it, just as you saw iron mixed with the soft clay. And as the toes of the feet were partly iron and partly clay, so the kingdom shall be partly strong and partly brittle. And as you saw the iron mixed with soft clay, so they will mix with one another in marriage, but they will not hold together just as iron does not mix with clay. And in the days of those kings, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom that shall never be destroyed, nor shall the kingdom be left to another people. It shall break in pieces all these kingdoms and bring them to an end, and it shall stand forever, just as you saw that a stone was cut from a mountain by no human hand, and that it broke in pieces the iron, the bronze, the clay, the silver, and the gold. A great God has made known to the king what shall be after this. The dream is certain and its interpretation sure. Then King Nebuchadnezzar fell upon his face and paid homage to Daniel and commanded that an offering and incense be offered up to him. The king answered and said to Daniel, Truly, your God is God of gods and Lord of kings and a revealer of mysteries, for you have been able to reveal this mystery. It's kind of hard to jump right into the middle of the book of Daniel like this and see this crazy image. But I think you caught a lot of what was going on. There are, there are three themes having to do with God and the nations that are going to be repeated over and over again in the book of Daniel, and they all really are present here in this passage. First is this, that God recognizes the nations of the world. God recognizes the nations of the world. He, they are legitimate. They're real. They matter to him. He knows about them. He gets involved in what happens to the nations of the world. Notice how in verse 37, Daniel was not shy about telling Nebuchadnezzar, this great king, exactly where his power came from. Came from the God of heaven. That's who gave you all this stuff. 500 years later, Jesus is going to stand before a guy named Pontius Pilate. He's going to tell him basically the exact same thing. You would have no political power if God hadn't given it to you. God not only gives the nations, like America, their power and place in the world, he also holds them accountable for righteousness. If you read the book of Isaiah, just for instance, the book of Isaiah, the, probably the, the longest prophetic book, certainly in the Old Testament, and it's written to the people of the nation of Judah, but not just Judah. If you read the book of Isaiah, you will see messages in there for Assyria, Babylon, Moab, Philistia, Syria, Ethiopia, Egypt, Edom, and Arabia. Same thing happens in Jeremiah. Same thing happens in Amos. Same thing happens in Ezekiel. God watches what goes on in all the nations of the world. He holds all the nations accountable, and he will also judge them. But not only that, God calls them to repentance. You might remember another prophet named Jonah, and that prophet Jonah was sent to Nineveh, the extremely evil capital city of the Assyrian Empire. But when Jonah, after some adventures, finally got to Nineveh, and preached God's message to them, the Ninevites actually believed God, it says. They believed Jonah's message, they repented, and they turned away from their evil, and God spared their nation for a period of time. Do you want to love America? 
Do you love America? Then first of all, pray for America. And if you wonder what you should pray for, I cannot think of a better verse to guide you than Proverbs 14, 34. Righteousness exalts a nation, but sin is a disgrace to any people. If you want America to be exalted, to be brought to a higher place, to be blessed by God, then it's a no-brainer. You need to pray for our righteousness, our righteousness, that we will repent of the things that we do that displease God, the cheapening of human life, the violence and lawlessness in our streets, the suspicion and, and sometimes the outright hatred with which we treat people who are different than we are, our sexual immorality, the dismantling of the family, the unjust treatment of the poor and, and marginalized. And if you think that my words are too politicized in either direction this morning, then fine, get before the Lord and decide how you can honestly pray them from your heart. It's up to you. There's a quote that's been going around probably for the last hundred years. And this quote is attributed to Alexis de Tocqueville. Um, who, he's a, a French guy who was uh, uh, very much an admirer of early America. And the quote says this, you've probably seen it on the internet, it says, if America ever ceases to be good, she will cease to be great. The bad news is, don't go sharing that on the internet because it's not authentic. Uh, de Tocqueville never said it, and he never wrote it either. The good news is this, you don't need it. Because you've got an even better quote, and it's a quote that does not need to be fact-checked because it's right in the Bible. It's Proverbs 14, 34. Righteousness exalts a nation, but sin is a disgrace to any people. Love America by praying for her to be righteous. And in doing this, you'll be praying for America's influence in the world as well. You'll be praying for America to be exalted, and you'll be praying in a God-directed way because God clearly cares about the nations, and he certainly cares about this one. Let me go ahead and mention the second theme that we see in the verses here in Daniel. That is that God not only cares about the nations, but he's greater than the nations. In fact, in Isaiah 40, it says that the nations are as a drop in the bucket or dust on the scales. So as much as God cares about the nations, their power is nothing at all compared to his. And that's true no matter how powerful a nation might become, and we're probably the most powerful nation in the history of the earth. But there is a kingdom coming in this vision of Nebuchadnezzar, there are four great empires that the king saw. They turn out to be, Daniel calls them kingdoms, but the, these empires are going to take control of, of larger and larger portions of what was then the known world. First we have Babylon, that head of gold, then Media Persia, the silver, and then Greece, the bronze, and then finally the Roman Empire. But the new kingdom that's coming is going to put an end, Daniel says, to all these kingdoms. We haven't talked yet a whole lot about the final form of, of Christ's kingdom, but suffice it to say this, it will rule over all other human kingdoms, and it will not coexist with any other world empire or dominant power. Jesus is not going to do away with the nations in the sense of human ethnicities and cultures and languages, because those cultures and languages and ethnicities, they were part of God's plan from the beginning that we would worship him in all of our diversity, that all nations and all tribes would be working together and worshiping together around the throne of God, and they'll be doing it in their own languages as well. But the political power of the nations will be broken, will be broken. And as, well, as much as we might love America, it is not an everlasting kingdom. As ingenious as our system of government might be, 
and as well-written as our Constitution is, and it certainly is, these things are going to be done away with. But that's okay when you consider what's going to be replacing them. Now, here's the third observation I want to make about this passage in Daniel, and it's really the most surprising if you think about it. And this one actually comes from Nebuchadnezzar himself in verse 47. After Daniel gets through with what he's saying, Nebuchadnezzar says to Daniel, truly, your God is God of gods and Lord of kings. Your God, Daniel, is God of all the gods and Lord of all kings. Here's why this is so profound. Back then, and in fact, throughout all of human history, you know this, the nations have always had their own individual gods. Babylon had gods. Egypt had gods. The Canaanites had gods. Greece had gods. Every nation had its own you know, local set of gods. And so did Israel. Israel, of course, only had one God. Now, considering that God, the real God, the God of the Bible, is so great and so transcendent and so powerful over all the nations, you would never think that that powerful God, who is God of everything, God of heaven, as Daniel calls him here, that, that, that he would stoop to identify himself with just one nation, right? I mean, if there was really a God like that, you'd expect him to say, you know what, I'm not the God of any individual singular nation. I'm too great for that. I'm the God of everything. I'm the God of all the nations. And yet, instead, God actually does identify with one nation. And Nebuchadnezzar is surprised here to discover the very unexpected truth that the God of this little two-bit country on the coast of the Mediterranean that he actually has just invaded and conquered turns out to be the supreme God over all the nations. That is, in some ways, the great mystery that is revealed in the Old Testament, that there is one nation and only one nation on the face of the earth that will last forever as a political kingdom, and that nation is Israel, which was the Old Testament expression of the kingdom of God. And in fact, the nation of Israel is also the New Testament expression of the kingdom of God. Now, before I freak you out too much, let me explain, because that sounds a little weird. But here's where we can build kind of a bridge from the Old Testament kingdom of God to the idea of the New Testament kingdom of God because in reality they're the same kingdom. If the big mystery of the Old Testament is that Israel's God is actually the God of all the nations, then here's the big mystery of the New Testament. And Paul, in fact, calls it that in Ephesians 3.6. It's this. Israel, while still the chosen people of God, is going multi-ethnic, multinational and worldwide through this thing called the church. The church is not a replacement for Israel, and the church will not exist forever alongside Israel because the church is actually an expansion of Israel. Can I say that again? The church doesn't replace Israel. The church is not going to exist forever alongside Israel because the church is actually an expansion of Israel. Isaiah said it this way in a prophecy that was directed by God at Jesus the Messiah. It says this, It is too small a thing for you to be my servant to restore the tribes of Jacob and bring back those of Israel I've kept. I will also make you a light for the Gentiles, that means the nations, that my salvation may reach to the ends of the earth. Jesus himself said it this way. He said, I have other sheep which are not of this fold, Israel. I must bring them also, and they shall hear my voice, and they shall become one flock with one shepherd. 
Paul, the apostle, used another word picture. He told the Gentile Christians in Rome they had been grafted on to the root of Israel. If you're a believer in Jesus today, this is going to sound weird maybe, and it doesn't say it on your passport, but your primary citizenship is actually in Israel. Because as a member of God's church, you have been grafted onto spiritual Israel, and one day your Lord, Jesus Christ, will rule the nations from the throne of David. And that's the throne of Israel. The one nation on earth that God has joined himself to in a unique and binding way. Okay, what does this all have to do with America and us being a bunch of heretics, right? First of all, let me say this, when you see this heresy thing. I am not here to bash America today, not at all. There's been an awful lot of that happening lately, and it's not helpful. In fact, the temptation that is facing American Christians today to fall into the heresy we're going to talk about. And I'm going to go ahead and give it a name that you probably heard, and this name means a lot of things to a lot of different people, but I can't think of a better word, so I'm going to use this. Christian nationalism, okay? The temptation facing American Christians today to fall into something called Christian nationalism, and we'll talk a little bit about what that is, stems not from America's weaknesses and problems, but it stems from her strengths. Because quite frankly, America is pretty special. It really, American exceptionalism is a real thing. At least I think it is. And not just because I'm an American. Of all the nations on the face of the earth, and even if you go back and look at the great world powers of history, America really is unique. Our nation was not founded upon or defined by a particular ethnicity like most nations were, which is why white nationalism is such a ridiculous folly. Most Americans at the time of our founding spoke the same language, except Southerners, we speak a little different one. No, no we spoke the same language, but that, that did not define us. And though Americans believed, almost all of them, in the same God, they believed different things about him, and that God was referenced usually in kind of a generic way in our founding documents, our religion really didn't define us either. America was founded on a set of ideas, chief among them, as, as Abraham Lincoln pointed out at Gettysburg, that all people were created equal in the sight of God and entitled to the same basic set of rights and freedoms. That was America. And as such, America was really designed, whether she knew it or not, starting out, to really be a multi-ethnic, multicultural, and even multi-faith nation. We were a nation of immigrants. Everybody that was coming here was from somewhere else. And if you wanted to join this enterprise called America, you could. You could you kind of bring your culture bring your customs, maybe even bring your language, but you know what? Your loyalties had to change. Your ethnocentrism and some of your traditions had to be set aside in favor of a new set of values and responsibilities. If you became an, America, an American, America was, was going to make you a new person. At least that was the idea. In short, there's probably never been a country that resembled God's church, the new Israel, and the people of God's kingdom more closely than the United States of America. And because America has these things in common with the church and because this nation was founded largely on Christian principles, it's only a short step to then say that America is the ultimate Christian nation and that to be American is to be Christian and that we are God's new Israel and we might just be the visible manifestation of the kingdom of God and we are probably the last best hope for God's program in the world. In other words, it becomes very easy to apply to America not just Proverbs 1434 about righteousness exalting a nation, but also Psalms 3312 as well. 
that we are God's country and, and, and that we are now God's heritage and we have now inherited the mantle that God once laid upon Israel. And by extension to think that if America doesn't do its job of bringing its Christian influence into the world, then we have failed in our covenant with God. This is not a new idea, by the way. At the founding of our nation, Ezra Stiles, the president of Yale University, if you can believe that, he, he declared this, that America was the new Israel and that George Washington was our Joshua. Woodrow Wilson, about 100 years ago, 10 years before he became president and led America into World War I, he declared this, that the mighty task before us was to make America a mighty Christian nation and to Christianize the world. Can you imagine a president talking like that today? And when a host of disgruntled Trump supporters entered the Capitol building back on January 6th of this year in an effort to disrupt the Electoral College, they were carrying not just old glory, but also the Christian flag. Why? Presumably because some of them thought they were on a mission from God. Brothers and sisters, it is a very good thing to love our country. It is a very good thing to want the best for this country, to pray for America, to, to, to pray that it will become a more God-honoring place. But it's, it's quite another thing to elevate God and country to the same level, to imagine a kind of biblical covenant between God and the U.S., or to equate the advance of America or the decline of America with the advance or decline of God's kingdom. This not only waters down your faith in Jesus, it's actually not fair to America because it lays upon this country a burden that she was never meant to carry. Now, let me bring this down to earth a little bit because nobody here is going to admit to, to heresy, right? How many heretics do we have in the room? Let me, let me just suggest maybe some down-to-earth examples of what this kind of thinking looks like when it translates into the real world because I think, I think it is around us. And if you're wondering how in the world to apply a sermon like this, it, it's probably going to take place mostly in conversations with people in your life where you talk about things like politics and religion or even the news of the day, because we all know that the bridge to talking about serious things, fortunately or unfortunately, sometimes goes through politics, right? So what are the signs that someone's beginning to kind of commingle their faith in Christ with their love for their country in a harmful way? Let me just give you four of them. There are probably more. Number one, you will break fellowship with other Christians because of political convictions. You will break fellowship with other believers because of politics. How can you vote for a Democrat when all Democrats are pro-abortion, and how can I maintain a close relationship with someone who wants to kill babies in the womb? Yeah? Well, how can you vote Republican when everyone knows all Republicans hate homosexuals and transgendered people, and how can I maintain a relationship with a hateful person? Sound familiar? Number two, you seem to care more about the country as a whole than about the people in it. The concept of America becomes more important than the people of America. Are you pro-life only because you fear God's judgment on America if we don't get our act together? Or are you pro-life because you care about the lives of unborn children and the women and families who are being devastated by abortion? Are you concerned for social justice as a concept that America needs to embrace, or are you truly concerned for those who are poor and mistreated? You know, Jesus also had an agenda. He was on a holy mission, but his mission was all about people. And a country is made up of people, and Jesus has told us to love people, not merely abstract ideas like freedom and justice or democracy or equality. 
Number three, you see some political leaders as utterly evil and some as nearly infallible. And probably for most of us, it's the first one more than the second one, right? And this one is getting worse in recent years. I have no idea how this country survived both Barack Obama and Donald Trump, since both of them were the Antichrist, right? According to some people. On the other hand, some people, maybe on the positive side, find themselves looking for a kind of Messiah figure to emerge and lead us out of the wilderness, and they maybe start to attribute super positive qualities to someone that aren't really there, while at the same time looking past the person's obvious character deficiencies. I know in my own heart, the thing I have to watch out for is viewing some of our political leaders with outright disgust and really kind of dehumanizing them or imagining in them all sorts of horrible motivations all because of what I see their policies doing to our country. But if I can't see those people as humans made in God's image and I can't obey the scripture that tells me to give honor to whom honor is due, then I think what I've done is I've put my devotion to my idea of America ahead of my devotion to God. Let me leave it at this. If every election day, especially every presidential election day, is either a glorious new beginning or the end of the world, you may have to take a step back and remember who the real Messiah is. Number four is kind of subtle, and, and there's a right-wing version and a left-wing version of it. I'm going to give you just, uh, just guessing. I'm going to give you the right-wing version, okay? And that's this. You see American history as one big decline from the time of its founding. You see American history as 1776, and then ever since then it's been the wrong direction. There is a view of American history that is becoming more popular today that says this, that America was founded as a racist and oppressive nation, and that it is therefore in need of radical transformation and maybe even throwing out the whole thing and starting over again. This is a very warped view of American history. But reacting against that, that warped understanding, some of us have maybe gone to the other extreme. In fact, maybe some of us were there already. In the other view, in the other extreme, here's, here's what it looks like. America started out... As, as kind of a, a pure and spotless nation. The Constitutional Convention in Philadelphia is kind of like our Mount Sinai where God gave us the Ten Commandments, or maybe it's like the Garden of Eden. Our Constitution may not be divinely inspired like Exodus or, or Isaiah or Matthew, but let's face it, it's pretty darn close. Washington and Adams were kind of like David and Solomon. And as we have slowly retreated from the ideals of our founders, we have lost our national innocence and we've gotten farther and farther from God and it's only a matter of time before he sends America into our own Babylonian captivity. Now, maybe neither of those narratives is the right one. Maybe it's something like this. Maybe America was founded by a bunch of courageous and brilliant people who also happened to be fallen sinners Maybe they were no angels. Maybe they didn't even get everything right. Maybe it's taken a long time for the freedom and rights guaranteed in our documents to become a reality for all Americans, and maybe we're still figuring out how to complete that process. But you know what? Maybe in the meantime, God has truly blessed this nation to be a place where millions could come to Christ, thousands could be sent out as missionaries to the nations, and millions more could escape oppression, poverty, and injustice and find some degree of hope here they never would have found anywhere else in the world. Maybe God doesn't expect America to be the new Israel, but he still holds us accountable according to his standards of righteousness. Maybe he will judge us by those standards. 
Or maybe he will intervene in response to the prayers of his people and our repentance. Will you pray for this nation and for her righteousness? That we might not only be spared judgment, but exalted, as it says in Proverbs. Will you work and vote and participate in this temporary kingdom knowing that God really does care what happens here? And will you take advantage of the awesome freedoms that are available to you here in this country to live out your faith in Jesus in private and in public, demonstrating the character and the justice of the one who is your ultimate king and inviting all the people around you to become part of a holy nation, not to be confused with the United States? And as you celebrate the freedom that was won for us on the streets of Lexington and Concord and the frozen camps of Valley Forge and the fields of Yorktown, let's also remember to tell people that there's an even greater freedom that can never be taken away and that freedom was won for them on a hill far away when the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords gave up his life for their forgiveness and for their freedom. In Nebuchadnezzar's vision, The rock that took down that that image was not made with human hands. The kingdom of God is not going to triumph in this world through America or through the political activity of God's people, but by the miraculous work of the Holy Spirit as he builds God's church. That does not mean that God cannot make use of a nation like ours in the process. Let's pray.